that those who want to help will help. So I appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. And with that, pre-K, elementary, and preteens, you are dismissed upstairs. Thank you, Allie. Those of you who are staying with us, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Second Samuel chapter 5. You know, as we're going to look at Second Samuel chapter 5, you know, one of the things, if we we're going to kind of sum up Second Samuel chapter 5, what we see is it shows the victory of God's kingdom. It cannot be stopped by anything that humanity does to rebel against God. God's kingdom wins. God's kingdom cannot be stopped. And what we are going to look at this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 5 is how that fills us with joy, that fills us with hope. And so my hope this morning is that this is a real encouraging service for us. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led, us, who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed King David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years at Hebron. He reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel in Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking that David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said unto the day, whoever shall strike the Jebusites, let him get up in the water shaft and attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived into the stronghold and called it into the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers into David and cedar trees and also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Now David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. After he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ebar, LSU, you know what? You can read their names. <laughs> Moving on. When the Philistines heard that the David had been appointed king over Israel, 
The Philistines went and up and to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out over the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came into Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there. And David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of the Rephim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, but go around their rear and come against them opposite of the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did, as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gazar. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that in the midst of a humanity that constantly shakes its fist at you and rebels against your goodness, your kingdom, your rule, you win. You win. You don't just leave us to our own devices. You don't give us what we deserve. You give us your grace and your mercy. Let the wonder of your victory overwhelm us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, since we've been back into 2 Samuel, I've been encouraged because, you know, a lot of you have mentioned uh, that you felt encouraged by, or I should say you've, you've, you've been surprised how much you've gotten out of this 2 Samuel series and even the 1 Samuel series so far. And of course, for, since we've been back in it, since in the start of the new year, one of the key themes that we've been dealing with here in 2 Samuel is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. And of course, in living in a world where you know, the nations still rage, where we see so, how easy it is to live our life according to the rules and the powers and the authorities of this world, where we seek to build up our own kingdoms, where we seek to build them up through power and not through love and submission into the, into the Christ who loves us. When it feels like this world is getting bigger and scarier and it seems like the kingdom of man is winning, it's easy for us to look at that and we can see that quite clearly play out in our lives. And we've seen that well. And it's easy to spot our sin, right? It's easy to spot how we fail in this area. It's easy to spot where we can see that we can move into, into the life of the ways of the man with our gossip, with our with our tearing others down, with our manipulation, with our seeking to build up our, uh, a fame for ourselves. It's easy for us to spot that. And one of the things that I've heard from many of you saying, yeah, you know, this has been really convicting. And that's in many ways great because we want God's word to cut deep into our hearts. We do. We want it to expose us our need for, for grace and our need for mercy. 
But if you're like me, it's easy sometimes to get stuck in the condemnation as well. It's easy for us to see our brokenness, but we also need to quite clearly hear and see the victory, the goodness, the completeness of God's love and mercy, which ultimately defeats not only the powers of this world, but the sin and condemnation in my own heart. And while each week we have we brought up and we've mentioned how Christ frees us from these powers of man, the kingdom of man, sometimes we don't always hear it well because our hearts are so cut to the quick as we see our own lives open before the Lord and his word. This morning, I want us to really focus and to celebrate the victory of God, the victory of his kingdom, the completeness of his salvation. And so in this passage, I want us to highlight three things that we can see in there. And certainly like all the rest of 2 Samuel and even 1 Samuel before it, there's a lot of different things we could pull out and direct. And even, and we're going to address this later on, we see some sin issues in David. We see some things that are going to come back to bite him. And we're going to deal with that, okay? But I want us to really focus and see on Christ's victory. I want to see us the victory of the kingdom in this. And so I want us to see first, I want to see the victory of the God's kingdom. I want us to see the fruit of God's kingdom and then ultimately the hope of God's kingdom. And so as we look at the victory of the God's kingdom, one of the things that we can see here quite clearly is that God's victory is complete, is complete, but yet it seems to have taken a long time from our perspective. From God's perspective, it was like that, right? But, you know, as we look back and we went through 1 Samuel last year and we've continued on into 2 Samuel this year, you know, we were first introduced to David as God's chosen anointed king all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I went back and looked. We did that passage back the second week of June. So we've kind of, we, we were introduced and we, were, we saw who David was. We saw his anointing the second week of June. And here it is. We're just now getting to it. And so it's almost seemed like it's been a long time waiting. We've been waiting for this over and over again. And, and each week we've saw what seems like yet a new challenge to God's anointing. We see, we've seen the challenges and the rebellion of man. Saul hasn't wanted to give over his kingdom. Rather, he sought to kill David. We've seen, um, we've seen other nations seek to kill David. We've seen uh, oppositions from, uh, from Abner. Once Saul is even removed, you see people wanting to come in and to stop God's kingdom. And we've even seen how David himself has put himself into places where he could almost be removed. Places where he's been disobedient. Places where he's been prone to give himself more to fear. And it's, imagine yourself reading this for the first time. You know, most of us, we grew up in Sunday school hearing you know, hearing about David. And so we know how the story ends, but you've reading this for the first time. You're thinking, man, how is this going to happen? How is this going to work out? Now, in many ways, it's kind of good that it's taken us this long because 
It's easy for us if we're just doing our, our, our one-year Bible study where we're reading you know, two, three chapters a day and we're coming through this. And we can, we can get from the point of David being anointed as a youth to him here in 2 Samuel chapter 5 where he's anointed king in just you know, a couple of, maybe a couple of days. But it's important for us to remember here that this has been years for David. This has been years waiting, longing for the kingdom within there. Can you imagine his own heart in many of these times? In fact, we see it as we've looked, and we, we looked at some of the parallel psalms, like Psalm 142. We see David's despair. You see his hurts, his frustrations within there. So often it has seemed like it's taken such a long time. But yet, again and again, what we see is this wonderful and good reality. What God starts, God finishes. What God starts, God finishes. You see, even in this passage, you have people that it seems like have thrown up their fist in rebellion to God. The Jebusites, right? And so you see this passage, when David is, is king, he, instead of just leaving the capital in Hebron, which is far removed from all the rest of the kingdom, he goes up and he takes the city of Jerusalem. Now, the city of Jerusalem at this point is being held in this very, uh, very uh, powerful fortress that is held by these people called the Jebusites. Now, if we were to look previously in the history of, of Israel, going back to the judges and going back to Joshua, we would know that the Jebusites were actually part of the Canaanite remnant that Israel was supposed to remove from the land. But yet they've never been able to, and this is hundreds of years at this point, they've never been able to remove these Jebusites from, from the city and their fortification that is taking place. And what they have is they develop this fortification that they believe is so strong and so powerful, they mock David. They're saying, hey, look, you have so little chance. Our fortifications, our security is so strong. The blame and the lying, the lame and the blind of our city, which would have been viewed as the, probably the most unhelpful in a military conquest at this point. They're saying they would be able to repel you. And so you see a little bit of a kind of a trash talking that's going on here between the Jebusites and David kind of going back and forth within there. And they're saying, hey, we're, we are so secure in who we are. You know what? This, the kingdom of God is not going to dislodge us. And we can look at that. And, and many times we see the boastfulness of our culture and our community crying out, saying, look, We've already killed religion. We've already killed Christianity. We've taken root in our places of our society and our universities and in our places of public elite. You're not going to be able to dislodge us. Or you can see maybe even in other countries that it feels like there's such a dominance of a, maybe a hostile religion to Christianity, maybe within the Muslim world, for example. You're never going to be able to dislodge that. But yet, what we see over and over again in Scripture, what we see over and over again 
in history, what God starts, God finishes. We can count on him. Now, this may not happen according to the timeline we want it to happen in. But it will, it will happen. No doubt, David would have loved for this to have gone much, much smoother, to have gone much quicker. But as we're going to see in a little bit, God is at work in that time frame and in those trials. We get discouraged so often, right? We get so, and, and we talked about this, the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. And some of you, you may have been feeling, you may feel in your own lives beat down. Feel like you're surrounded by people who are taking advantage of you. Maybe it's a spouse who you're trying to be faithful, you're trying to be loving, but the spouse has continued to be manipulative, dishonest, lying, harsh, bitter. And you're becoming weary. You're saying, where's the kingdom of God in this? Maybe it's a family member. You know, sometimes that can go, that can be our kids. As we look and we seek, sought to be a godly family and our kids just seem to be rebelling and we just worry and we, we look at this and we say, what's going on here? And in my own pastoral ministry, one of the things I've seen is, a lot of our frustrations is with our parents sometimes. You know, our parents have made really bad decisions in life, and we become frustrated because what can we do with that? We become discouraged within there. But what do we see over and over again? In the midst of the brokenness of this world, what God starts, God finishes Sometimes in our own lives, rather than feeling the presence of God, all we can feel is our wounds within us. As we seek to grow in the life of faith, as we seek to grow in our own personal walk with Christ, it seems like all that we can feel is our brokenness. All that we can feel is our own sinfulness. All we can hear is the condemnation of the evil one shouting in our ear, look at you. Look at your failures. You're not honest. You're not being honest with God. Look at you. You're just as you're 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 a mess. You're broken. You're never going to be anything other than that. But yet, and it's easy for us to hear that. But what scripture constantly calls us to remember in the midst of even our brokenness, in the midst of our sin, the good work that God has started in you. Yeah, you know what? In that process, you're going to become to realize that you are more sinful than you ever, ever thought you were. But in the work of God, as to quote Tim Keller, you'll find out in this process of looking and dealing with this sin, you're more loved than you could dare to dream. And in that process, God reminds you to wait on him. What God starts, God finishes, period. But in that process, in that time, we want to give in to the rage. We want to sink into our depression and our bitterness. We feel weary, and Scripture gets that. 
That's the reason scripture in places like Galatians 6 tells us to not to grow weary in doing good. That's not trying, you know, when we hear that sometimes, not to grow weary in doing good, we feel that as almost like this rebuke, like a, what's wrong with you? Come on, why are you growing weary? But let me suggest to you, that's not the right tone that we need to hear. In that. We hear that because that's the condemnation that we, we are heaping upon ourselves. Let me suggest to you that a more helpful way of hearing that is God saying, I know, I know it's weary. I know it's weary. I know it's hard. You see, that's one of the great things, one of the most glorious things about Christianity. In our faith, God himself took on human flesh in Jesus Christ. He knows what it's like to be weary. Now, he never sinned, but he knows and understands our weaknesses. That's the point of Hebrews, right? He understands our weaknesses. God understands our frustration. He understands our impatience. And he calls out to you, don't be weary. Not to slap you down. Not to to demean you. Not to tell you, why are you complaining about this? He calls, bring your laments to him. No, he says, don't grow weary because he understands and he's calling you to trust him, to hear the voice of the spirit speaking to your heart. What I've started in you, I will finish. What I have started in you, I will finish. I will finish it because of of my grace. God is saying that to you. Because of his mercy, because of his love, which is moving towards you. So rather than seeing death, what we see is, in fact, victory. You see, one of the other things that we need to understand within that is God's victory which comes to us, his ultimate victory, which comes to us, comes to us through the cross. In other words, it comes through us through the vehicle of death. God's victory, God's kingdom come, does not avoid death, but rather it runs through death to destroy it. God's victory will go through some of the deepest parts of your hurts to have victory. You see, that is the completeness. When we say that God wins, when God's kingdom will come, it is a thorough victory. God's kingdom wasn't complete in this point until the kingdoms were united, but yet God brought even that. It would seem so hard, right? How could they be united in such a way, but yet God brought it to be? And in your own life, the completeness of God's victory will not avoid some of the hardest broken parts of your life, but will actually run through it. And in running through it, that'll bring forth, honestly, hurt, pain. Why? Because God's victory won't settle for anything less than healing in some of those broken parts of your life. Let me give you an example. I was reading in a book this week on prayer, a great book by Kyle Strobel and John Coe, professors at Talbot Seminary. One of the things they mentioned is one of the parts of prayer that can often be hard for a lot of people in our generation is one of the very first words a lot of us say, Father, right? Father. When we pray to the Father, it can, it, we, because with that we bring in all of our baggage from our own Father, right? 
And it's easy for us to want to say in the midst of that, you know what, I'm bringing in a lot of garbage, a lot of bad faith, a lot of difficulties, a lot of hurt from that word father. So it's easy for us to want to just say, well, let's just use a different word. And their point, and I think they're dead right in this, is no, that's the exact word we need to use. Because what God wants to do is go into that very place of our deepest hurt and our deepest woundedness and to bring healing. So that when we go to that word father, we don't want to just walk away from it and and give that over to the enemy and in the brokenness, but say, no, 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 no. God is going to take that and redeem it and bring healing into those deepest places of our lives. Now, that's just one of example of so many places. And as people, if you're like me, we've got a lot of different places of brokenness. And what that means is God's love, as his kingdom comes, it's going to come into some of those deepest places of woundedness and bring them up. But the purpose of that isn't to bring hurt or woundedness, but ultimately it is to bring healing. There's a lot of many deaths that take place, but with God, death never has the final word. Resurrection does. Death never has the final word with God. Resurrection does. So Paul, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's addressing this, this church that has so many different issues taking place within it, so many different sin issues that are going on. And he breaches this, this, this crescendo of just phenomenal theology and the importance of the resurrection and, and how because Christ is raised from the dead, it means that we will raise from the dead. And as he moves towards the end of that chapter, we see that that confronts in the resurrection the most painful and the most profound and poignant weapon of the enemy, death itself. It doesn't avoid that enemy. It runs straight into it and it conquers it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to say, following that, therefore, all the things we do, we don't do in vain. In other words, all the things that we do, that we're doing, that we're, we're growing in, and the, the woundedness and the workedness that, that's being worked out in this world is not in vain. It's part of God's healing moving into the brokenness of our lives. What God starts, God finishes. Even when sometimes, you know, I've, if you've ever been to, like, a, a, done massage therapy, right? I, I've done that before. And you, you think massage, at least my, my thought is, hey, this is going to be nice, relaxing. I was holding on to the table with this, 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 this woman who's much smaller than me, much bigger guy out there, and she's got this thing on this place in my hip right here. And all I could do is say, ah! And she said, would you like me to stop? <laughs> Sometimes we want to call out, okay, God, stop. We wonder why it continues on. It's actually an act of love. It's actually an act of goodness towards him. As his kingdom moves into the most broken places of our life. 
Not only can humanity not stop, the world can't stop it. The secularization of our culture can't stop it. But one of the places that often get us discouraged is our own sinfulness. We think, man, I'm so broken. Surely I will stop the kingdom of God. But yet, and we've seen this in David. We've even seen this. I'm not going to highlight it yet because we're going to deal with it a little bit later. We see some sinfulness in David. But yet, even his brokenness couldn't stop it. Why? Because there would be one who would come in who was sinless, who was perfect, Jesus Christ, the true king who would come in and ultimately lay down the perfect atonement for sin so that we, none of our sin, would ever stop his kingdom coming. So we see the victory of God's kingdom, but we also see the fruit of God's kingdom. We see the fruit of it. What does it look like as God's kingdom come? Well, perhaps you were like me, and as we read that verse, you're, you were drawn to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11. And it says this, And David became greater and greater for the Lord. The God of hosts was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers unto David, and with cedar trees, and also carpenters and masons who built David's house. Now, this is quite an astonishing. If you, if you understand and you are living in the, the world, you say, hey, wow, that's incredible. Because this Tyree, uh, they were famous for these cedar trees. You Maybe you've heard of the cedars of Lebanon within that. That is these. These are some of the most sought out materials in all of the ancient Near East and the ancient world. Even today, and it's unfortunate, some of the forests are, are very much eroding, and uh, there's, there's a, uh, some real problems in that area with the forest. But this is what's the, if you wanted to build the most glorious um, edifices, you wanted to use these cedars of Lebanon. They were incredible. And so that made this Tyree or Phoenicia incredibly powerful in this area. They were an economic powerhouse. And so they're recognizing this. And so this is sending it to David. And so you'd be thinking, wow, that is incredible. But notice David's response in verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, that he had exalted his king for the sake of his people Israel. In other words, what was the purpose of this kingdom? Well, we kind of addressed it previously in a a sermon a while back. It's love working itself out in good works. The fruit is ultimately God filling us and this world with his glory, with his beauty. And that doesn't just come through our statements and the songs we sing as much as that's good, but the way we reveal God's love and the way we interact with one another. Notice how seamless this transition was. If we were, if we were to go back to, to 1 Samuel verse 1, we got to keep in mind what, what had happened in the previous chapter in verses 3 and 4. The country was in civil war. There was incredible fighting between these two tribes, not just for a few months, but for years. That means a lot of people died. There was a lot of hurt that was there. But yet, what do you see 
you see two remarkable things. The elders of all the tribes of Israel, they come before David. And they say, you're our king. And they submit themselves before David. But also notice what you also, I, not so much see, but don't see. You don't see David lording over them. You don't see David demanding a price. You see love. You see reconciliation. You see in this statement, hey, God exalted me king, not to make me and my family something, but for all of Israel. Not just all of Judah, but for all of Israel within there. What is the fruit of God's kingdom? It is love. So if we were to go to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, And in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, we see this wonderful work of how God's kingdom breaks into our lives. And it's wonderful and beautiful because it begins with talking about the state that we're in. We are alienated. We are apart from God. We are in a completely different kingdom that wasn't just kind of in a treaty with God, but was in hostility with God. But yet God in his grace grabs us and he says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, lest anyone should boast. It is a work of God. And we're saved. Why? For good works which he has prepared beforehand. So we see that God brings his kingdom into our lives as a work of his grace and his mercy. Without skipping a beat, he says, the purpose of this is for good works. Now, Immediately, when we think of good works, we think of, you know, okay, I'm going to do this righteous thing. I'm going to do this righteous thing. But it goes on to kind of explain what these good works are. You know what the first good work we see in Ephesians chapter 2? Reconciliation. Reconciliation between us and God and reconciliation between Jew and Gentiles. Between two people that were at enmity with one another, forming together one person making peace. And then you see, as he goes on to explain, to continue to explain what this looks like as God's kingdom come, in chapter 4, he, he, he urges him, he said, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And what is the fruit of that? What does that look like? His church walking in unity and love and peace. And he goes to work this out and the way this works out and in our relationships as a family and our relationships with one another in church and our relationships submitting to one another, even with the, the outside culture. The fruit of this is a joy and a submission to God that works itself out in love. But let me submit to you, let me suggest to you I think a lot of us would say, yeah, that's the fruit of the kingdom, but we see it so woefully in our lives, in our churches, in our communities. Why is that? Let me suggest to you that one of the reasons we don't see that is because we're not setting in the victory of God's kingdom. In other words, We're not living in the freedom that God's love and his victory over our sin, his victory over our lives gives us. And so we become more and more enslaved to ourselves and we become less and less free to live out the freedom of God's love in our our families and in our lives. So what is the answer 
to this love? What is the answer to this fruit? It isn't to focus exclusively on trying to be more loving people, but to live out a reality of what God's victory and his love has done for us. And then seek for God to show how we can apply that love into our settings. Now, that leads us to the last thing. We talked about the fruit of God's kingdom. We're going to end with this, the hope of God's kingdom. And this brings us back to the reality that this is a work of faith. As we look through the New Testament, throughout the letters of Paul, yes, it oftentimes talks about how we will endure hardship, how we will endure suffering. But notice the constant theme for us to be a people who lives out of hope, not out of defeat, not out of, you know, that doesn't mean a, any kind of a name and claim it, prosperity gospel nonsense, but rather a hope that comes to the reality to us that God reigns. He is sovereign. And this is a work of faith in our part that when we look and we see the nation's rage in our home life or in our world, that ultimately we're reminded that Christ reigns in victory over this world. This is a work of faith. And it calls us in the midst of our discouragement to wait on the Lord, to be strong and let our hearts take courage. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes that's really hard. Sometimes that's really hard. And that's where it becomes deeply important for me as I work through Scripture. It's easy for me, and we were talking about this in Sunday school, it's easy for me, for example, in, in, in Psalm 1, which is what we were talking about in, in Sunday school this morning, to really dwell on the passages. I can sit for you know, a good hour just meditating on how I can be one who sits in the, in, in, uh, with the mockers. That's a reality that's there. And there's, there's goodness to that, but I also need to be one who is reminding myself constantly, telling myself, driving this home to my, to my life of the goodness of God's victory in my life, that he has saved me. I am his by grace. He will never leave me nor forsake me. And so in my own life, I have found that that has to be an intentional habit. And it can come off almost kind of kooky. It can almost come off, come off as a little bit almost self-helpish and cheesy. But it is vitally important that I begin with that reality. I am the Lord's. He is my future. All the burdens of this day are his and not mine. No matter what happens today, I am loved by him. No matter how much pain I feel, no matter how much hurt I may feel, I am loved by God in ways that maybe I can't understand right now. And that is an intentional discipline for us to remind ourselves of God's victory so that we become a people who are ultimately of hope. And if we find ourselves struggling with that, 
We need to come back and say, how do I need to remind myself of the victory of God's kingdom in my life? But let me also end through this. The path to hope goes through the cross. The path to hope goes through the the cross. For the believer, what that often means is what God will do to shape our hopes to only in the place where is, is victory and healing. What that means is he will strip away a lot of our far false hopes. The things that we find our identity in, our pride, our ability to solve every situation, our ability to be the one who can do and serve everybody, our righteousness, that we're the you know, the most moral person in the area. Our marriages. Oh, we have the best marriage. Oh, I've got the best job. Look how secure I am in my finances. God in his love and his mercy will bring the cross into those places. But again, not to bring death, but to ultimately put to death our false idols to bring hope. The last thing I would say is a reminder There is no hope apart from the victory of God. There is no hope that bypasses the cross of Christ. There is no hope from simply having a good positive mindset. There is no hope that says, hey, let me figure out how to cope with the brokenness of this world. There is no hope that comes from, hey, I'm going to be a better person. Let me help me develop the habits to be a good, stable person. As good in many ways all those things are, apart from the cross of Christ, apart from the victory of Christ, there is no hope. There is no victory. And so if you're here today and you're longing for something other than the victory of Christ to bring you hope and fulfillment, I'm sorry to tell you. Well, I'm not sorry to tell you because what Christ has is so much better. but you're not going to find hope anywhere else. But the good news is that hope that he gives us in Christ is free. And you can come into it not by being a good person. You come into it not by entering into some dramatic search for fulfillment. You come into it not by making a series of commitments of God, if you save me, I'll do this. You come into it by throwing yourself upon the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And that ultimately his victory on the cross, as demonstrated by his resurrection, is your victory, is your hope. So I ask you, would you do that today? Would you throw yourself today upon the mercy of Christ the good news is when you do so, you find a God who is already there before you that was bringing you to yourself, to himself. Father, we thank you for your love and your goodness towards us. I pray, Lord, that you would just change us. Father, I need to be reminded of your victory. I can see my sin Well, not as clearly as you see it, but it can certainly overwhelm me. And in doing so, I look and I wonder, how could you love me? How could could you bring victory from this mess? 
Oh, how I underestimate your grandeur. How I underestimate the wonder of your mercy, the goodness of your grace, the power of your redemption. How I underestimate that in my life. Oh, but it is good. Give us faith in this moment to see its wonder and its goodness and its completeness, its simplicity, its its power. I need it. We need it. Fill us with hope and love this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.